Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Talking Tesla. This is the official podcast of Concordia University's Tesla Resource Center. In this podcast, we interview various members of Concordia's Tesla community, from faculty members and alumni to students in the middle of their bachelors. And our aim is to bring our community together and learn from each other's insight and diverse experiences in the Tesla field. This is the second episode in our series all about critical pedagogy, the educational philosophy of Paulo Freire, which is discussed in his seminal work, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. In part one, I spoke with Dr. Nassim Noruzi about what it means to practice critical pedagogy and how it manifests in the classroom, and why it's important. In this episode, we'll continue the conversation about being a critical pedagogue, but in the context of teaching abroad. I would argue that when many people think of TESOL, they think of teaching in developing countries. This is such a common goal for many teachers, and it's also the way that many teachers get into the field in the first place. It's so common, it's almost cliche. Students in North America or other Western English-speaking countries are unsure about what they want to do after high school or university, so they go teach ESL. For many, it's a great and super accessible way to travel and earn some money. English teachers are in high demand in many countries, and native speakers know they'll be able to find work, sometimes even with no credentials or work visa. They know they'll be treated with respect and that their dollar will take them quite far. However, there's something problematic about this dynamic that is rarely talked about openly by teachers, either because they're unaware or maybe it's uncomfortable to discuss, or they know that they benefit from their status in developing countries. How is it that a person with no teaching credentials is able to get a teaching job? Oftentimes, the Western teacher with no credentials is even given preferential treatment over the native uh, with degrees and experience. Why is simply being an English native speaker enough to qualify as a teacher in these countries? And why is it that some native varieties of English, such as the American variety, Canadian or British, are looked upon more favorably than, say, um, Indian varieties of English or Singaporean varieties, right? I mean, these are all legitimate dialects of English. How much does the teacher's appearance and status as a Westerner figure into their value as a teacher? And what message does this all transfer to the students watching their Western teachers being given such respect and preferential treatment in the school systems? What message does their presence and variety of English transmit to their students about what a legitimate English speaker should look like and should talk like? Now, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be Western ESL teachers in developing countries. Oftentimes, there's a shortage of teachers and the demand is high. However, from the perspective of the ESL teacher, perhaps we should be thinking critically about what our presence and the content of our classes transmits to our students, both about the English language and its speech community, but also about the way students should view their own native language and culture. For individuals who want to teach ESL in developing countries, there's no shortage of information on the internet about other Western teachers talking about their experiences, sharing tips and tricks, such as how to land jobs and navigating certain cultural norms. 
However, we hardly hear from the perspective of the students being taught by those teachers. How did they feel about their foreigner teachers? What messages were inadvertently transmitted to them by their teachers? What advice do they have for other ESL teachers wishing to teach in developing countries? In part two of our series on critical pedagogy, I am joined by Nina Lee, who is a master's student in Concordia's Applied Linguistics program. Nina is Vietnamese and completed her high school education at an Australian international school in Vietnam. She was mostly taught by Western teachers and is here to reflect upon that experience and the inequalities she observed between the treatment of ESL teachers in Vietnam and her treatment as a teacher here in Canada. Hi, Nina. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Suzanne. I'm so happy to be back. I'm so happy to have you here. You have a very unique perspective about critical pedagogy, and that's because you have the experience of being the student in a developing country and being taught by foreigner teachers. So just to reiterate, the aim of this episode is to get a sense of what that experience was like for you, and then also what suggestions do you have for ESL teachers who want to teach abroad, especially in developing countries? Because as we know, this is a common goal for a lot of teachers, and it's very easy for teachers to go off and teach in other countries and maybe not be so conscious of you know, not only what the content of their class transmits to their students, but even just their presence as a foreigner from a Western country. Yeah, it's going to be a great episode. I am ready to unpack. Yes, it's a lot of unpacking. So let's get to it. So the first question I really have for you is, what was your experience like as a student in an Australian school in Saigon? It's a big question, big general question. <laughs> I actually had a lot of good experiences as a student in an, an international school. In terms of the education experiences, at that point, I was a kid, so I wasn't thinking much. I wholeheartedly enjoyed the learning experience in the international school that I was in. I was actually very proud to be in one, like to be taught by 100% Western teachers, to have international friends. At that time, I think there were like 30 to 40% Vietnamese in my class and the rest were from everywhere in the world. So, but that is really on the surface. Like if you trying to unpack a little bit more, then as I grew older, I started to see things that I didn't realize before, you know, it was really when I got a scholarship at the age of 15 to study abroad in the UK, did I send something was deeply uncomfortable um, about the whole situation of Western teachers in Vietnam. The thing was when my Western teachers were in Vietnam, they, they were all treated at school with the utmost respect, like more respect than Vietnamese people used to even treat each other. Um, and honestly, I thought that, wow, it's great. Like, I would like to be like my teachers, you know, like if you're from abroad, if you're coming to another country, you receive this kind of special treatment. And honestly, I thought it was the standard of hospitality. So in my mind, I was like, I really want to go abroad to to be like this international citizen 
to receive this kind of like great hospitality from other countries, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Interesting. So then what happened when you did go abroad? So when I stepped my foot outside of Vietnam into the UK, I I told you that I realized something that wasn't working, right? Because I was less than their citizen. I mean, like, even now I am a teacher in Canada. Mm -hmm. I'm just an equal person to any other Canadian teachers. Mm -hmm. In fact, like people may even question my ability of teaching as a foreigner, you know. The fact that I came from abroad is not something that makes me ultra special, like how it makes Western teachers in Vietnam stand out from other Vietnamese teachers. Mm-hmm. You know, like it was to the point that it was a bit of kind of discrimination against Vietnamese. Like Western teachers were paid so much higher in my school back in Vietnam um, rather than Vietnamese teachers. And I think it's, it's, it's wild. Yeah, it's wild. And like that's just crazy. Yeah. yeah. It's, and it's not just my school. I mean, nowadays as well, it creates this influx of backpacking teachers traveling to developing countries well I can't say for other developing countries I assume the same thing but there's a lot of backpacking teachers in Vietnam seeking jobs because it's so easy for them to get a teaching job that pay decently and that they could continue with their backpacking traveling so so then I guess the question is um, from your perspective why do you think this inequality exists? Like, why is it that Western teachers are paid more? Why do they get this respect that Vietnamese teachers don't get? From your perspective, what do you think? I think it has to do with the image of how English is viewed in Vietnam, in Saigon. I don't know, if you ask a typical Vietnamese to describe an English teacher I doubt that the description would look anything like me, you know. Um, They are more likely to give you the image of a Western white person from the US, the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Other countries where English is spoken as one of their official languages may not even make it to the list. Like, not many would think of, like, a Singaporean or an Indian teacher. I mean, an English teacher let alone a Vietnamese like I am, you know? So there's this kind of image that is associated with English and white Mm -hmm. teachers. So if you are teaching English, you should be white. And I think that's why it creates this inequality. When I was 12, 13, when my parents were deciding which international school to send me to, one of the top criteria was the percentage of teachers from abroad, especially Western teachers. Like, for example, my school back in the day, they prided themselves with 100% Western teachers. And it was true. We didn't have any teachers from Singapore or from India. With Pam, it changes a little bit. The perspective of people changes, especially at school when you know, like people become a bit more progressive. Um, I have a friend who is Mm -hmm. currently working in an international school in Vietnam. And she said that her school is trying to have a more diverse staff body. Um, However, Mm -hmm. when it is a white teacher as a homeroom teacher for a group of students, 
the school doesn't receive a lot of questions from the parents. But in the case that the homeroom teacher is an Asian teacher, then there usually is an influx of questions asking for this person's certificate, this person's training, this person's educational background. It speaks a lot, you know? So, so what I'm getting is basically just by the way the person looks and perhaps also the accent that they have, the variety that they speak, that gives them a certain legitimacy that also extends to the teaching, which is crazy. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you know how to teach it, right? Like that in itself is a skill. So, but it seems like in, exactly. in the situation you're describing, just by virtue of who they are, they have more legitimacy to teach. It's not just being able to speak English. It is the look of a white Western person. That is the image mm-hmm. associated mm-hmm. with English. So my current husband is, is Canadian, but he's Asian. And when we started dating, I was in Vietnam at the time. So he was actually thinking of moving to Vietnam, you know, like just to check out and just to kind of see things around. And he talked to a Quebecer who... Mm-hmm is his friend but he is Quebec and he doesn't speak a lot of English he speaks more French um, but he used to live in Japan and China and and my husband asked his friend if it was easy to find a job there and his friend told him that it's so easy to find a teaching job in Asian countries so when he was in China he landed an a, a job to teach at a, an English school, even though he doesn't speak much English. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the interview was very quickly yeah. when the employer saw that JS is a white person, you know, they just kind of, well, they tested his English a little bit and, and he got the job, you know? And I told my husband mm-hmm. back in the day, I was like, that's not going to work right. for you. Like, <laughs> since you are Asian, you don't have to look. They may not hire you, you know? You know, and let me tell you something. I think that a lot of foreigners who go and teach abroad in these countries, they know this. Like, this is not news to them. Like, they know. They, they are, they're going to be treated very, very well just by virtue of what they look like and the type of variety of English that they speak. And I think it's the kind of thing that a lot of foreigners who do this feel very uncomfortable discussing and confronting this reality and especially maybe not amongst themselves but perhaps when talking with you know the the actual people like the population there who who are missing out on opportunities that perhaps they actually would be better suited towards just because they are not they they don't they're not caucasian or they don't have this image that is associated with english i think it is a very tough pill to swallow for teachers for western teachers in developing countries mm-hmm. because like you said they don't want to 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 confront this they don't want to discuss this they don't want to feel like they do have the privilege privilege in general it's such a my god for some reason i mean people have a lot of difficulty i think confronting this like basic reality that by things that you have no control over you, mm-hmm. you may be treated better, you know, or you will receive yeah. certain privileges. Um, people are really, really uncomfortable with that. So it's good that we're 
having this conversation and bringing it to light and hopefully, you know, people will discuss this further. Let's move on to the next question. So we talked about the image of how English is viewed. And just to reiterate, this view is, you know, not necessarily of an Indian person, not necessarily of a Singaporean person, but mm-hmm. it's it's a white person from a Western country, probably mm-hmm. speaking a particular variety of English that's either British, American English, Canadian English, New Zealand, right? This is Australian this is the image. <laughs> Australian, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So my question is now, why do you think that that image exists? Like, do you think it mm-hmm. gets perpetuated somehow in schools? Like, why is this image the way it is? I I will have to bring you back to our history. Yeah, <laughs> this is, yeah, this is important. This is something, mm-hmm. Yeah, this is something deeply ingrained in people's minds, um, especially when they're from a developing countries living in a post-colonial country. Vietnam is a post-colonial country. Um, We were colonized by Western peoples for, I don't know, a hundred years before. Um, And, you know, so so it's it's really deeply embedded in people's minds that Western people or Western cultures or anything Western is better than, than Vietnamese things you know than Vietnamese people Vietnamese culture and it's sad because they view themselves they have a lot of insecurity and they accept those things to be casted on them poor uneducated uncivilized and they accept the fact that people from western countries are civilized educated rich and it's like they're doing this charity, you know, they, they're going to Vietnam to do charity for people. They are giving out knowledge. I'm just thinking because you brought up such a, oh my God, before we started recording, okay, you brought up this this anecdote from mm-hmm. your mom because we were talking about, um, okay, so if this is really ingrained in the, in the minds of, of, of the people and someone comes and challenges it, what is the reaction? And you brought this up with your mom. And do you mind just sharing how, she, like, what she said, how she reacted? Yeah. So I, I talked to my mom about this episode. I talked to my mom. My mom is still in Vietnam right now, and 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 she's a typical Vietnamese. That I was telling you before. So I, I talked to her. I was like, I'm going to participate in an episode, an, a podcast episode about, you know, Western teachers teaching Vietnam and like how that create inequalities. And she was like, but this is normal. I don't know why do you have to talk about this? Like, she's like, I agree with whatever you're saying, but I think that this is normal because if there's a rich person going to the side of the road and sees a beggar, the rich person gives the beggar $10. The beggar should feel grateful and not questioning, like, why do you just give me $10? Why don't you give me more? And, you know, like, that's that's what, that's so strong. Like, when she told me that, I felt hurt because we accept the fact we, to, uh, to the point that we believe that we are poor. And, okay, it's true that we are poor, then and we are a developing country but we have been accepting 
the label of an uncivilized, uneducated country, that we need charity from Western countries, Western culture, Western people. And that's why we treat them with utmost respect, that we don't even use the same respect to treat our own people. And it hurts me because I assume that it was the standard of hospitality, but I did not receive the same hospitality level when I was in the UK or when I came here to Canada. It sounds, yeah, like like that sounds to me like it was such a wake-up call in a way, you know, like that moment was really this turning point moment. I mean, honestly, I don't know, just hearing that anecdote from your mom and how, you know, for her to just say that, obviously she thinks it's like the most normal thing in the world, but it just makes me so, I don't know, it makes me so sad. And then I guess it brings it really to this, back to this question of critical pedagogy, you know, which is the topic of what we're talking about, which is the role of the teacher. The students are not just these blank slates. The role of the teacher is really to empower the students and to problematize things and have the students contribute. It's this real, it's this idea of collaborative knowledge. So I guess the question is, in a post-colonial country, in a country where this was this was the past, how can can foreigner teachers be better? I think I think it's the mindset. It's really the mindset. I'll give you an example of my own mindset, how I changed my mindset. I became an English teacher thinking mm-hmm. that I am passing on the key to success. When I was younger, started learning English, Mm -hmm. my dad was like, I'm giving you this key to success. You can use this key to open so many doors to your success, which is true in a way. It was true. But when I started out teaching English, I had the same mindset. I was thinking of passing on. I was really inspired to pass on this key to success. But the deeper I dive into the ESL world, I realize that we should not see English as the key to success. We teach English as a tool, as a tool that students can acquire and put in their social and work toolkits, not transforming their cultural beliefs and their ways of living to be successful, you know? I think with English, it's it's also interesting because with English, like what's unique about English is it is quite instrumental. You know, I think with other languages, like I just think of when I was learning German, yeah, all the examples in the textbooks and it would all be about like Strudel and, <laughs> you know, like this Bavarian kind of typical German image, mm-hmm. like, like the culture was definitely infused in the learning. But I think what's different about English is, well, mm-hmm. first of all, there's this colonial history to be aware of, but also that what is the culture associated mm-hmm. with English in a way? Like it is the lingua franca of the world and it is such an instrumental language, you know? English is one of the official languages in Singapore, you know, but they don't eat potatoes or pastries, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> if you look at textbooks nowadays in Vietnam even, um, you see Alice going to the supermarket to buy you know, like potatoes, pastries, like all these things that, I don't know, like it's, it's very American or Eurocentric, you know? And 
and and things that are not very relevant to to people's culture. I mean, as an English speaker, you learn German or Spanish or French. I mean, the textbooks also introduce food and other cultural aspects, like you you said. However, there's no thread for an English speaker、mm-hmm. to learn these things. It's additive knowledge. You know what I mean? Yeah, that like that's another okay. That's another super interesting point to clarify is that you're saying because、mm-hmm. now please correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just trying to you know understand、um, because there's this power imbalance because of the history of Vietnam and English is viewed、mm-hmm. and Western people are put on such a pedestal. It seems there is this risk that by really teaching the culture to such an extent, it will kind of Further enforce like this is the、yes. this is like no, the better culture and and like it, it it kind of will you know I'm not I'm not is is this it because I feel like I'm I'm not really expressing myself well but I guess there's the idea that like teachers could inadvertently further put down yes, the home culture yes and and that's why I, I, I mentioned the word additive knowledge for an English speakers to to learn other people's knowledge there's no such threat however. As a person from a post-colonial、mm-hmm. country, where you know English is seen as the key to success, or Western culture is seen as you know the culture of higher society, we are teaching children or teenage, we're teaching teenagers, especially to 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 think that it's okay to abandon their culture and language because their culture and language do not have. A lot of value. It's better to learn English and Western culture because it's the key to success. <laughs> it's the key to success. You know, I think to illustrate this, can you tell me a little bit about the dynamic in your high school? Because I know in your in your former high school, you did have to take Vietnamese cultural classes, which was just for the Vietnamese students. The international students were exempt from this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Back in Australian school where I went to,、uh, back in the day, I'm not sure if they're still doing it now. I hope not. But back in the day, we were divided into two groups: the blue and the orange. And the blue are people with better English skills, whereas the orange they would have to take ESL class after school. You know, and so you think which group is cooler? Obviously, the blue group. You know,、uh, and. Which group has more Western people? Obviously, the blue group, and you know that's association that the cool kids are Western kids, and I mean it's it's sad because kids Vietnamese kids in the blue group would not say like hang out a lot with the orange kids because they feel、mm-hmm. like oh they they cannot speak English they. Okay, not can cannot, but they speak less English. They not as cool, you know. So apart from blue and orange, that's already one layer、mm-hmm. of division, you know.、Uh, another division was the Vietnamese class. So all Vietnamese kids, all kids who have the Vietnamese passport, will have to take the Vietnamese class, regardless if that person is from blue or orange, and kids. Who don't have the Vietnamese passport can do something else during that time, and usually it's something pretty cool like art or music or something like that, you know. So, just really recently, I realized why why don't these kids from the non-Vietnamese group learn Vietnamese because they are in Vietnam. 
Like, why? Yeah, or also because these classes, was it just the language or was it also like cultural as well? Culture. It's called VCL. So it's mm-hmm. Vietnamese culture and language. Okay. And it's, it's sad because these kids, these non-Vietnamese kids were exempted from learning Vietnamese language and culture. But why? They are living in Vietnam. You know, like how ridiculous that sounds if we change the context into Canada or in Quebec. You know, in Quebec, we have this Francis Zessiong that trying to 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 change people, transform people into like a francophone. You know what I mean? Like it's crazy. It's crazy. You you would also think, and I mean, I guess this really ties back to the attitudes towards English, but you would think also that if you come to a country, like, don't you want to learn the language? It will facilitate your life. Like, and it's so interesting. Like, don't you want to learn the language and learn the culture? And I feel like sometimes like people, when they think that if I, like, as long as they don't learn the language and as long as they don't tap into the culture of that country, Mm -hmm. they can regain their expat status. Yeah. Because... Why don't you want to 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 know people's you know if you're living on their land why do you insist on in living in this bubble Exactly exactly I mean look that's the other thing like let's let's address this right here you know is it's 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 so common that foreigner teachers going to teach in developing countries will kind of live in a little in a little bubble like this is this is just the way it is and look yeah, let's be real here. I mean, I think a lot of it is also, it's just easier. Like, it's it's just kind of easier. It's what's familiar, and it's the language you know, and there's, there's a certain ease to it. But at the same time, like, think of how that reverberates. Exactly. Like, at the same time, you are, intri- you are contributing to social injustice, because that wouldn't work for a person from a developing country to do in a developed country. For example, when I came here, the first, really first time I came here, I was on an eight month visa. I wasn't thinking of, you know, like of living here forever. I was testing out the water, but mm-hmm. no one, no one would call me an expat, you know? The moment I stepped into Canada, I've heard people asking me, so are you going to learn French? You know, like things like that. And this is how French people do things around here. And I was just thinking that, whoa, I'm just living here for eight months. But no, I do try to learn French. And I I don't expect people to accommodate me when I come into another country, even though I was thinking to live here for only eight months. But that was not the same thing for Western teachers that I knew before. They... They expect staff at school to accommodate them with yeah. English. And some teachers lived in Vietnam for so long, they have this intention of not moving back to their own country. They, to the point that they married Vietnamese people and they live in Vietnam, but they still call themselves expats. And I don't get this. I just don't get this. I know, I know. It's like at that point, call yourself an immigrant. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like there's no shame. There's no shame. Yeah. But I mean, okay, so let's 
okay, but I think it's worth mentioning though that it does happen that immigrant communities form in Canada and do stay do stay amongst themselves. Like I I remember talking with um, a Singaporean friend who's from Singapore, but his grandmother is living in Toronto. And he said, he said his grandmother's been living in Toronto for like years at this point. And she does not speak any English. And literally like, she just gets people to like, she just like lives in her, in her little bubble. And that's what she does. Like it happens here, but let's be clear. The difference is, is that, is that looked upon in a positive light here? I would say no. You know, like I think here there's there's this real um, push like, no, you got to integrate. I've seen this. OK, I was working at a cafe in Vietnam mm-hmm. and I saw this guy, a Western guy, walk into the shop and he ordered in Vietnamese. OK, he ordered coffee in Vietnamese and the staff member who was the cashier was just swooning over. She was just like oh my gosh, you speak Vietnamese. And then she ran to the back to ask kitchen staff to come to the front to see this guy. And and she was just like, I am so happy that you speak Vietnamese, you know? And the guy was just like treated like a star because he, he spoke Vietnamese. I was just thinking, imagine me going to Starbucks here and order in English and people were just like, "Oh my gosh, you are Asian, but you speak English." It's just like, what? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> like, I think that there, really... are, there are things that you know, like we take for granted from immigrants in developed countries. We take it for granted that you have to learn English, you have to learn the language we speak here. But when a Western person in Vietnam speak Vietnamese, it's like a gift that they bestow to us, you know, like I <laughs> it is man, it is just so it's so crazy. It is it is just so crazy. So okay, so I think the the question that we really need to end with and that we really like this is this is the take home here is if you're if you are a foreigner teacher and you are going to teach in a developing country, we're, we're saying Vietnam here, but I think a lot of this can extend to other countries as well. What what do you need to know before going? And also, what can you do in your classrooms that when you are teaching there, how can you be better? How can you celebrate the home culture? How can you not be such a a presence Neo- that perpetuates? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, okay, let's call a spade a spade. Like, yeah, how can you not be such a presence that that perpetuates this power imbalance? Because I think inherently, you are. So we got to talk about this. <laughs> I think I think there are two things to unpack here. The first thing is before you go. And the second thing is how should you do it when you are in the country, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like I, I feel like before you go, you have to be aware of your status. Are you a traveler? Are you a worker? You know, like it's different because a lot of people do travel to developing countries as a traveler at first and then they run out of money and then they just get a job and they never get a work permit and I think this is something really wrong Mm -hmm. even though the employer may not notify the government or the authority but just as a person I feel like you need to 
have a good moral compass to apply for a work permit. Um, a lot of people think of this as something so simple that I can just travel there and work. I can't travel here and work. I needed to apply for a work permit. So it's the same thing out of respect to do mm-hmm. it for the developing countries that you are traveling to, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the mentality that you, if you are going there with the intention to become a teacher, teachers everywhere in the world, you are in the position of influencing children. Mm-hmm. And, and when you are a Western teacher in Vietnam, for example, your influence goes beyond. So it, it impacts kids in Vietnam so much what you're doing, what you're saying, that your course co- content, your just the way you do things mm-hmm. will impact them so much. So if you yuck someone's yum, you know, if you look down on, on, on locals' food, you set up a strong example for teenage students to do the same, even though it's their cultural food. It's, you know, like you... It's just the, it, like I said, it's tough pill to swallow to know that you are so much more privileged. It comes with a lot of responsibilities when you go abroad to teach, especially I, to developing yeah. countries. Completely, completely agree. I, I also, before we started recording, you brought up an example of a high school teacher that you had who was like an exemplar, mm-hmm. like who 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 was doing good. So can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. And I think this is a good gateway to kind of like go into what should you do mm-hmm. when you arrive at the country, when you receive your first class. Um, like I said, you know, like do your research, observe what people are doing around you. So Sivan, you mentioned my my previous teacher, my science teacher. She's not even an English teacher. She's from the US. So in Vietnam, the norm for teachers, especially female teachers, is to wear our yai, which is traditional dress, to work. And this teacher, she would wear the Vietnamese traditional dress to teach every day. Not many foreign teachers adopt this norm though, but she did and it meant a lot to the students. It shows that our culture is important, you know? It, mm-hmm. And I think even if you feel shy to do this, if you move to Vietnam, you see teachers wearing the traditional dress and you don't want to, you know, like you're a bit uncomfortable, just ask. Like people are so friendly and, you know, you can just ask the principal or you can ask other teachers if it's okay for you to do. I mean, I'm not calling out other teachers who don't do this in Vietnam and it's totally fine. Do whatever you feel comfortable with. But by adding a bit of local cultural values into your life, into the way you do things, learn a bit of the native language so you can talk to the staff or the security guards or the taxi drivers, you know, like students can see and understand that their language is not something to cast aside and to speak just English. You know what I mean? It's And you will be treated with the utmost respect from Vietnamese people, from people from developing countries. It's just their hospitality. They feel like, oh my gosh, like 
we are visited by Western people. You know, we will have to treat them nicely to show them that we are very friendly, to show them that we are civilized. So they will really treat you with a lot of respect. And it's up to you to internalize that or not. It's up to you to think that you should be humble or not. And I really hope that even with all the treatment that you receive, even with all the special treatment that you you have, you can still be humble. Nina, I mean, I, I think I think you said it. Like, ah, oh man, this is so so important because so many teachers do this, you know. And look, I can tell you from the other side, I am Caucasian and I taught in a developing country, and it's really it's really easy to just fall into these kinds of rhythms. And and what I mean by that is um, it's very easy to just be like, okay, wow, this is making my life really easy. Like I want my life to essentially be as easy as possible. You know, like it's already kind of culture shock to go somewhere new and blah, blah, blah. Like I can say like it's already it's already difficult enough to try to mitigate the culture shock and whatnot. I guess the the reverberations mm-hmm. of actions when you don't try to integrate are so far reaching, actually. And this is the thing that I think a lot of foreigner teachers need to be aware of. So, oh man, you you said it. Like, I really hope that this conversation spurs on more conversation because this is a important, important topic. Nina, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us and your knowledge and really unpacking this topic that on the surface can seem kind of like an easy conversation, you know, but really there's a lot to unpack and the issues run very, very deep and run into history. So thank you so much for sharing with us today. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me again on this podcast. The Talking Tesla podcast is a feature of Concordia's Tesla Resource Center. To find more information about the Resource Center, visit our website at www.concordia.ca forward slash Tesla. We have tons of online resources for teachers, articles about teaching, a mentorship program, and of course, more episodes of Talking Tesla. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn under Concordia's Tesla Resource Center. In part three of our series on critical pedagogy, I'll be joined by Amani, a graduate of the B.Ed. program and a novice teacher here in Quebec. She's here to talk all about practicing critical pedagogy here in Quebec and what challenges teachers may face given our unique political climate.